everybody, and welcome to Attendance Bias. I am your host, Brian Weinstein. My guest for today's episode is Tim of Wook Plus, also known by his Twitter handle, at Weekend Wook. If you've engaged with the fish community on Twitter over the past two or three years, there's no doubt that you've come across one of Tim's fish brackets, in which songs, tours, or venues are pitted against one another round-robin style to compete for the title of best. When I first encountered the bracket two years ago, I was immediately intrigued. I had to get to know the person behind Competitive Fish, and Tim was gracious enough to accept my invite to come on the pod. If you haven't engaged with Fish Twitter, now is the time to do it, as the 2021 Fish Song Bracket Tournament is underway. Follow at Weekend Wook and join in the fun. For today's episode, Tim chose to discuss Fish's show on July 27th, 2014 at Merriweather Post Pavilion in Columbia, Maryland. Opening with a strong set, the band really brought things to another level with the 3.0 version of Tweezerfest throughout set two. Certainly a notable show and one of the best of 2014. In this episode, Tim talks about his intentions behind the fish brackets, his engagement party that was a part of the show, theories on why the band does or doesn't plan ahead, and the benefits and disadvantages of bringing friends to their first show. So reserve your Merriweather parking pass in advance, get to the lot early to avoid the garage, and make a stop at Wegmans for pregame food as we join Tim from Wook Plus to take a look back at July 27th, 2014 at Merriweather Post. Tim, welcome to Attendance Bias. How are you? Good. How are you doing, Brian? I'm very excited to talk to you today for several reasons. Of course, the show that you picked of Merriweather Post on July 27th, 2014, what I would call the modern Tweezer Fest. Tweezerfest reprise. Tweezerfest reprise. <laughs> and but also uh because I've been a really staunch follower and fan of the brackets that you've put together for the last couple of years. And as I take them and I look over Twitter and comment and rack my brain. I just need to know a little bit about the mind behind them. To learn a little bit about you, before we get into the heavy music stuff, you grew up on the Jersey Shore, and now you live outside Philly. What kind of music did you grow up listening to? Once you get out of the kid stuff, right? Like there's like the the Fisher Price toy kid, like whatever. But when you actually get into real music, yeah. I think it was started classic rock. You know, I, that was kind of really common uh with like my friends we got into like zeppelin and stuff and then grunge uh my first tape was nirvana and then from there i went into like this very short heavy metal phase where i was like in, like in between like classic like metallica and then more into like the rage uh and then my brother was a huge he's five years old i mean he's a huge fish fan uh and he brought home slip stitch and pass so this gives you an idea i guess around 97 was the first time i had heard fish what about slip stitch and pass grabbed you it's kind of weird in hindsight but it was way the first song i heard was way and i'm a drummer so it wasn't even the weirdness like i've heard people say like oh the quirkiness or the weirdness in the lyrics is what drew them in but it was the groove of it because i had like this swing and a funk right like that like and like the the balance of the music and the groove that they it was so, there's first time hearing it the subtleties in that I hadn't heard in rock music 
And then you want to dive more into it. And so you told me that your first show was at Bonnaroo in 2009. At what point, like what happened in the space between getting into fish with Slip Stitch and Pass and Bonnaroo? Slip Stitch and Pass 97, I was just too young, right? Like I just, I didn't really have the opportunity to go to shows. And then in high school, I was one of those overachievers, just really involved. And I remember I had a couple of opportunities in 2.0. That's when I was in high school uh, to see shows. Uh, but I was like drum major of the band. I was in jazz band. I, I, ha I had my own band. You know, I was like in theater. I did all the really hyper involved. And, and all of those things had camps and shit during the summer. And the first tickets I ever had were for Coventry. But I remember uh, this was right after high school. But I remember I had something in the family. It was some emergency. And I had to make a choice and I chose not to go. And I remember thinking afterwards how I made the right decision because yeah, I might have been the end of my fandom. So basically, I had to wait then that whole hiatus. I was that's when I was in college. Those were my prime years and I couldn't see. So I got really heavy into Mo. I saw probably 40 or 50 Mo shows during those years in between. I, I started seeing Humphreys and a couple other bands. And then by 09, summer 09, it was like, it wasn't a stumble upon anymore, right? Like you were like, I had been, the slingshot had been pulled back and just holding for years and then, you know, launched out as soon as they came back. It's funny because we have almost parallel lives about this. I, I'm guessing I'm about four or five years older than you. And when I was in, when I graduated high school in 2000 and I got to college, that was right around when they took their first hiatus. So when you mentioned that slingshot analogy, that was me in college. And it's like, all right, now we have a car. Now we don't really have to care about class, I thought. Um, yeah, right. you know, and, you know, we have the freedom. I was in Buffalo, so I was closer to the Midwest where there were a lot of shows. And then they went off for 18 months, you know, and then they were gone. Right then, during that prime time of touring that you really could have been racking up a bunch of shows and having a great time. Yeah. And then when fish came back, when they announced it in 2008 and came back in the fall of two, spring of 2009, everyone was just primed. It was like, okay, now let's step up our game a little bit. And that in my life was when I had just gotten my first full-time teaching job. So I had a real salary and I had summers off. So like <laughs> you, were, you know, you were ready to get going in 2009. So was I. And so 2009, that was Bonnaroo. Uh, they headlined that festival. What are some of your memories from their set or from the weekend in general? Uh, it's maybe it'll give you a clue as to what substances and other things were involved. But I, I just my biggest memory from that weekend was the rain, the sound of the rain. I think it rained night three. I, I forget if it was night two or three, but Bruce Springsteen had come out on stage with Fish. He was the other headliner. And I didn't even, I couldn't even hear Bruce singing or, or playing. <laughs> All I heard were these, whoosh, 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 you know, like a million raindrops coming down. Um, it, it was cool seeing fish in a festival setting, I think, for somebody that came into it with my point of view of having, because by that point I had listened to, I mean, dozens of shows and watched Bittersweet Motel. And you know what I mean? Like I was like a, a junkie. So like seeing them, you know, I had watched footage of Clifford ball, you know, and great when and everything. So then like seeing them in that big field, it felt super satisfying to what your expectations were. Like other people complain now, okay, they're doing a festival set, right? They're hitting, they're giving you all the big hits and everything, but for your first, 
time seeing them after building it up in your head, seeing all the big, you know, fish jams in that setting was really, I think, satisfying and, and kept, I wasn't let down at all. Right. Like you just kept going from there. So it must have been a lot of fun. And I'm sure the vibe there was just off the charts because it was an opportunity for everyone who hadn't seen them in those five years to go if they could make it to Bonnaroo, of course. But there was no there was no like ticket limit. Bonnaroo might sell out, but it's not hard to get in. And the other shows that summer were hard, I think. It was tough to get tickets overall that summer. Yeah. And that was a major summer tour. They yeah. played a huge summer tour in 2009. What first got me interested in having you on the show and connected us was your Twitter account, Weekend Wook. And it's at Weekend Wook, right? Yep. And there's weekendwook.com, although that's phasing out to wookplus.com. Uh, but yeah, it's a whole media conglomerate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. You and Rupert Murdoch side by side. The part that really zoned me in was the brackets, the Weekend Wook brackets. And for anyone who doesn't know, who's listening and isn't aware of it, can you tell us what the weekend book brackets are? I put jam centric topics head to head and buy and give you binary choices mainly to cause melts. I mean, we put it under the guise of figuring out the best, but the real motivation is to motivate conversation and discourse and, and to laugh a little bit, right? It's funny to see people get really upset about things that are not that serious. And it's tremendous. Honestly, these days, is you kind of lost that, right? Like, it started a couple of years ago, and I think it was more fun to have trolling and, and people getting upset. And But now it's like, uh, shit is serious, so. Fish has always been serious business, as we all know. <laughs> Very serious. <laughs> but I love it so much. I think it's so much fun. And personally, I feel that, you know, that delight when I see two shows that I love pressed up against one each other um, or one that I've never heard before, like the Alpine 2019 Alpine Valley show that all I know about it is Ruby Waves up yeah. against like a 97 fall tour. That's show. definitely a benefit of the brackets, even for myself, is the ex exposing yourself to new things that you hadn't heard. Um, like it started with the song bracket. We did one with 320 fish songs and honestly probably 300 of them I knew very well but even at that level you're like digging deep into the catalog and then the tour brackets and now the show bracket um, so that kind of revealing hidden gems is is fun it's cool though I I think of it and I don't want to overly you know tout it it's it's not like the Mona Lisa or whatever but I like the brackets because it's a two-pronged thing for me it's a psychology experiment and it's an art installment, right? Like the actual design and the graphics and the visuals of the bracket is very satisfying creatively because I'm an engineer by trade, right? That's why I design things. So I think in a very analytical way, but it's also um, very artistic in my opinion, right? There's a lot of creativity in it. But then once it's created, that's like the first phase. Then it turns into this living, breathing thing where you, you know that when you're creating it, you're going to create certain matchups and discussions and see how people react. Well, when I start to vote, sometimes I go, how did we get here? <laughs> yeah. How did this happen? Something that you mentioned earlier about how it kind of forces a fan to really dig in, to really look up like on a, on the fish show, I'm sorry, the fish song bracket. If you asked me to sing my left toe off the top of my head, I probably couldn't. And I've yeah. seen it live. 
but <laughs> yeah, probably not. I don't think I'm good either. You know, but, you say that. <laughs> but it makes me go back and listen. And something else I wrote in that article, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. I wrote that they challenge my long held opinions and assumptions that it's obvious to me that fall 97, if you include the holiday run is their best tour ever. But when was the last time that I really did a deep dive into summer 93 and not just August 93? You know, the bracket, it gives me the perfect reason to revisit jams and shows and tours even or maybe coming up venues. And there are some shows and tours where their reputation and their legacies have been like calcified in my head, in my fish rankings personally. And sometimes it's like, wait a minute, you got to revisit this. Like what's the point of faith if you don't challenge it every once in a while. And it's interesting to me because I, I always had a very specific calcified ranking or view of things that I thought was widely accepted. And that was the way, you know what I mean? Like this is the way that it's like fall 97 is a perfect example. Right. Um, And there are those, individual outliers like big cypress as far as festivals and new year's eve is the outlier it's obviously the one that gets voted for fall 97 i i don't think anyone questioned that was going to win the tour bracket tweezer and yam were going to be the top two songs but the best part about the like the interesting thing to me is how diverse it is after you get out of that point right like i thought everybody else was going to have the same calcified rankings and it's the 50 50 matchups the amount of 50 50 matchups that was the biggest surprise to me there were there's most of the brackets i don't i think probably every single bracket has had at least a couple straight 50 50 results which is crazy because you think everybody's so opinionated and there's one right answer but there's really not and i think if i did the same brackets again they may flip and there never has been a right answer is the delightful part. You know, what what the brackets also do for me is it's on my phone screen, it's on Twitter, but it's the same exact thing as sitting around a grill in in a parking lot before the show when you had a, a big group of fans in their beach chairs or whatever. You know, it's we would all go around and we'd argue. It's obviously easier to do it in good nature when you're in person than when you are on Twitter and yeah. people get a little, you know, a little nasty or could. If I were a little bit of an older fan and I started saying how uh, fall 95, nothing like it, you weren't there. So you don't know. And someone else says, yeah, well, fall 2013 was sick. You, you know, you probably didn't even like the band up to that point. It's the same conversations you have. It's yeah. just now it's online and it involves everybody who wants to instead of whoever could fit in your car. Also, there's a voyeur. I, that, I don't mean not to make it um, inappropriate, but like, Sometimes I don't have the energy to be part of those conversations that give my opinion, but I like listening to people argue those to those things. Right. So there's also that because it's kind of like this public dynamic growing content and you could go in. I still go back and look at some of the discussions on some of them. Right. Because you're capturing those lot discussions in a public forum, which is neat. You know, I thought I knew my stuff. And then I looked at some of the conversations going on in the brackets and damn, I got to go back to the library. Yeah. You and me both. It's I, I think that because I create a lot of it, sometimes people think that I know all of all of the shows or all the entries perfectly off the top of my head. And the truth is that it, a lot of work, a lot of research, a lot of, I have this little algorithm to like help rank things based on different metrics. So a lot of it is I'm kind of figuring it out with everybody else. Like I, obviously I, 
probably know more than somebody who's not done that because it just it feeds off naturally. But I, I'm like you, I can't pull dates or stats out of my head like that. And that's why I wanted to have you on the show to talk about a show that you've been to. And right before we get there, I wanted to wrap this section up about one more thing. You your uh, Twitter feed from Weekend Wook eventually morphed or had an offshoot, I guess you could say, to Wook Plus. Can you tell us a little bit about what Wook Plus is? Yes. Yeah, so Wook Plus is a YouTube channel at its heart. I mean, it's, it also involves a blog and it's, it's a group of us. There's five of us that collaborate. Um, and basically about a year ago, just be, right before New Year's 2020, you know, the rescue squad, I put out a call on Twitter. And I was like, Hey, I'm going to start a YouTube channel because that was kind of a missing uh, sector in like fish fan content. Right. There's a there's podcasts, there's blogs, there's Twitter accounts, but there was only like one or two guys doing anything on YouTube. And it it turns out I figured out why it's because it's really hard to do YouTube (laughs) content. Everything gets striked for copyright claims. Um, So anyway, I put out a call. A bunch of people responded. We started coming up with content. And and here we are a year later. It's. It's really, I think, been a fun experiment. I don't know if it's been successful or not. I don't know what metric that is, but we're going to keep it going because we're having a blast with it. Well, speaking as someone who's tried to start up a project uh, to put out there for fans, if you're having fun and you enjoy it and it's satisfying to you, then it's a success. In 2014... For all intents and purposes, the summer was the Fuego tour. Although the band was, the band like kind of debuted the album the previous fall as Wingsuit in Atlantic City for Halloween. It was officially released in June 2014, right before the tour started in Great Woods on July 1st. And Fuego was played at 13 out of 25 shows this tour. And set lists were littered with other songs from the album. Uh, Waiting All Night was a pretty common song to catch that that year. Wingsuit, The Line, uh, 555 kind of made its presence known in the first set. Winter Queen occasionally. Um, I wish they would play Sing Monica more often, but that's just me. I'll vote for that one in the next song bracket. Um, but for me personally, 2014 wasn't a particularly memorable fish year. I saw the two shows at The Man, two out of three shows at Randall's Island, two out of the four shows in Miami. And that was it. I remember hearing about the wedge at Northerly Island in Chicago. That was a superior Mm -hmm. version. I think still probably the best version they've ever played. And of course, Randall's Island, uh, that was, you know, a superior run, but this, uh, this show that you picked today, July 27th, what led you up to July 27th at Meriwether post? So I had been living with my girl from, from college and we had just gotten engaged. Uh, and that's actually one of the reasons I chose this was because we had our engagement party that weekend. Um, but before I get into that, I th- it's funny what you're saying about Fuego everywhere. It was kind of the same thing as the 09 10 year of getting number line everywhere. Right. So I actually liked Fuego right off the bat and loved 14 because of all the Fuegos. It was the opposite with Joy. I hated Joy when it first <laughs> came out. And now it's switched. I like, I would love to get a number line and I listen to Joy more than I do Fuego. But at the time, I loved Fuego. I loved everything about it. So I, I was probably one of the few people that really dug the amount of Fuegos that we got that year. Um, but yeah, no. So I guess leading into that show, we were 
my wife's family lives in Annapolis. So that's the whole Maryland connection. We were trying to figure out a way to connect our engagement party with that mini run. And what we ultimately decided to do was have a family party during the day and then travel with the friends, you know, like because grandparents and aunts and uncles didn't come, but everyone else, all our groomsmen and bridesmaids came with us from the party and went to the fish show and continued. It was so, I guess you could say it's more of an after party than the actual party, uh, but it was a fun, fun weekend. Are they into fish? The My wife is, and the bridesmaids? yeah. So the I, people who came with you? Probably half and half. I like my brother was one of my groomsmen. He was there and, you know, a couple of my other buddies were, uh, but not everyone, but do you know what? They were respectful though. And it's funny. Cause I, I feel like if you see fish live, you have no choice, but to become a fan. And that, that weekend was like one of the best shows I'd seen and it didn't work on some of them. So that's, that's not true. Not everybody is meant to be a fish fan, right? Yeah. Like it's not everybody that came there drank the Kool-Aid, but they were respectful. They weren't talking or, you know, they had fun. And that's what it's about in the end. I personally think, I agree with you that not everyone, it's not for everyone, but I think everyone should try it once. Yeah. Cause well, I, I remember distinctly my buddy that's not a fish fan saying, I don't get it, but I get why you get it. Right. Like that was the difference is like, he didn't enjoy it, but he could see all around him that many people on the same wavelength. And he's like, I see what what's alluring about it for you. So the whole idea of an engagement party is like, they're all there to support the new couple, the new marriage and everything. And so they were very supportive and it was great having friends there. I have not brought non-fans to a show since, and I never will just because there's a, there's a certain ease when you have a crew that knows what they're doing. Right. And that was, we were almost missed the opening, right. It it was hard getting drinks and stuff. I'm not a big crew with a bunch of amateur kind of guy anymore. Like I like having my four person, you know, it's usually like a couple, couple, me and my wife, and then our best friends also go to shows. And like, we hit the, the, the bathrooms, we hit the, vending we get our seats you know what i mean like it's very efficient so i don't know you're you're all pro all pro now i don't want to be bringing noobs so let's get right into the show set one opens with fee which i always think is a great opener and someone on the audience recording if you listen back to it is tremendously thrilled right at the beginning and he must be standing right next to the mic and they've only played it five times since well, it's cool because you see the uh, mega, is that what it's called? Megaphone? It's a megaphone, yeah. Right behind and before he comes out on stage because I don't know if it actually sits out there when they, I've seen a couple shows where it's out there and they don't use it. But so, but it's not always there. Right. So I guess it has to be an England in his mind before the show that it's a possibility. But when you see it first set before they come out, half of the fans are like, we're getting a fee. And then when they actually go into it, I think that's what the elation is. I don't think it's necessarily that everybody's like, fuck yeah, I got a fee. I think it's, they called it and to their, not, to their less experienced fans, it's impressive. So he's like, ha ha. <laughs> and also he, Trey forgot one of the lines, which makes it a real fee. In my yeah. opinion, either fee or cavern, you know, he's yeah, stopped and somewhere. went back into it. Right. Yes, and you could tell immediately that the band is feeling loose right away. I think Trey even says something like, I remembered it, just not in the right order. When they came back to it, because he skipped a verse and went back to it. And the song ends right there. They don't really end it just after he forgets it and comebacks in. And then goes to the curtain, which is awesome. 
Yeah, and it was really well done, if I remember, especially for that year. There was a lot of mistakes I remember in shows around that year, and I feel like, if I remember correctly, I mean, I, I haven't listened to it super recently, but I think Curtin Whit they really nailed. Later in this show, they actually had some mistakes that kind of derail things. So to have these couple of gems in the middle of the first set was pretty cool. That's definitely, uh, you're going to have a good show, right? You get that and you feel good. And it ends before the jam gets too deep. uh, The curtain does. And they go right into a nice shot of energy with 46 days. And it's kind of similar in the curtain in that it's strong, usual version that Trey ends before it goes out there. And so far, to me, it seems kind of like a good jukebox show. Kind of like when you were talking about Bonnaroo, like a lot of good songs just hitting you one after the other. Yeah, this is a song that gets the non-Fish fans loosened up, right? Sure. Because Fee, it's like skeptical. Everybody's like, well, all right, you know, from that perspective, what's going on? Current with it's like, all right, that's a lot of notes, but I don't know if you're not really musical, if you get it. But then 46 Days kind of like just like a classic rock raging, you know, type song. And I think that's what loosened up the the rest of our party. They followed up with 555 which got a lot of play in 2014. I looked it up. They played it 18 times in 41 shows. So that's like just under half. And then right into my sweet one, which is one of my favorites. Yeah, I agree. Um, 555 is okay. I don't really have much to contribute to that. I mean, it's, I never hate it, but I never like really remember it. Right. When you just catch it at a show, my sweet one's the opposite. I think that was probably the highlight of the first set for me. And it's not that it was a spectacular, my sweet one, but just the fact that it was my sweet one. And, uh, and it's your, your engagement party. Right. And, and, and it, and it's both like the obvious, like, Oh, I love you. You're my sweet one. But also that like rowdy, you know, we're at a party, we're jumping around, we're dancing. Like, so yeah, I, I think that was a very good moment in that set. And then things change around a little bit with sand, where before that, it was all like short and sweet, straightforward, single songs. And Sand, it was a really smooth whole band groove. And it does wander off quite a bit. This is really where you're going to see who has the metal for this and who doesn't. Yeah, exactly. And pretty much any of the new guys were lost at that point. But (laughs) at that point, I didn't care, right? That's where I got sucked in. And I no longer was at my engagement party. And I I was with my wife at a fish show or my fiance at a fish show. It's your party, yeah. Yeah. But there are parts where it really does experiment a little bit. Well, it's a good vehicle, too. It's a very tight 
uh, repetitive groove. And that happens a bunch of times with fish songs, right? But those tend to be the best vehicles because it gives a nice bed for Trey and Paige, usually Trey first and then Paige slides in to play around on. After sand bouncing around the room comes around and it's, Good. It's a good follow up to what I thought so far was the best jam of the show in sand. Do you like bouncing around the room? I do. Okay. I think that's a, one of these weird ones that like the lure of, or the, the feedback I was getting about the song before I had even seen the band live tainted it for me. Right. Because like I had my brother's groups of friends, they were all fish heads. And that was kind of like the number line of the day, or I guess now it's like a uh, salt planet from the, the way I remember people describing it to me. Right. Like it was kind of when it came out, it was like the poppier thing. And even though I, enjoy listening to it it's always been kind of tainted because of things i heard when i was really little right described the way bouncing was described to me before i even knew the band has now tainted the way i view that song 20 years later i don't know self-fulfilling prophecy yeah exactly (laughs) but no i agree about the placement though it was a perfectly placed kind of breath in that set and then after bouncing they played saw it again which is a crowd favorite for sure yeah, and I think the breakdown when it goes like in the halftime, the bow, yeah. in a live setting with the live speakers when you already have that energy is just kind of like a mini eruption, I think, right. It's not like the hood eruption with the glow sticks, but it's just like everybody's in sync in the same motion. It has that. It, it punctuates uh, the crowd. I feel right. Everybody kind of headbangs at the same time and jumps and, it, it was uh, it was really getting fun, I think, at that point. Yeah, you could feel it. I wasn't there, but listening to the audience recording, you could feel it. You could hear the crowd, not quite over the music, but within the music. Yeah. That it's kind it's of joining together. It. Yeah, right. And after that, now it's time for Fuego. You get a Fuego and you get a Fuego. And this is when the song, I think, this is my take on Fuego, that in the beginning, I love the Halloween version. I was at that wingsuit show and I thought it was the best song that they played that night. I loved it. I loved it. And this tour was when the song was still exciting and it could lead to really big show highlight jams. But then toward the end of the tour, even and now it sometimes feel like they're kind of forcing it a little bit, like they're leaving the end a little too wide open. Yeah, I agree. And I, it's, it's funny you say that because I was saying that earlier, how, I started off being a very big fan of the album and the song, and I'm not as much anymore. And I never actually contributed that to them changing the way they play it. 
but it makes sense because um, it felt tighter and it felt more fresh early on. Like there, there was more opportunity or possibility with it. I guess I do love fishing that in that song though. That drum beat. I don't. It's not a super intricate drum beat, but it's fairly intricate. Are you talking about when he speeds up? Yeah, when he break when he breaks down, it's like I can't I can't drum <laughs> use it. But um, yeah, when it's just fish. And it goes into the fast part. Yeah, right before the organ comes in. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's. I love that drum line, and I love it too. I thought that I think that the band's harmonies work very well on it, even though it's kind of cheesy classic rock. That part. Yeah. On a quick aside, are you familiar with "Let's Go"? Yes, the it's a Mike Gordon song, right? Yeah, they played I, it a couple times. Yeah, just a couple, and I I don't I when I heard it the first time. I was so into it. I was like, man, I hope they like bring this back a dozen times and they never brought it back. But I agree. There's a reason some of that cheese is popular. Right. And it's the same thing is with Fuego is it's fun to chant like that and to be all on the same page and have that communal experience. And then they close the whole set with you enjoy myself. Yeah. And it was good. And I think that is sometimes fish has to pay or, or Trey at least has to pay a little bit of like dividends to the older fans, you know, what I mean? or, or hardcore fans. Like uh, he still does it. Like they'll cram a, a soul planet or everything's right or something. And, and then they'll bring back a hood. And I feel like that yam was just like, okay, we've given you a lot. We gave you five fifty five. We gave you Fuego. It's like, we're here. Let's bring it back to the origins. I don't know. Maybe that's a, a cynical way of looking at it, but it, it feels like he has to bring it back sometimes. I thought that I thought the opposite because this set, when you really break it down, has a lot of hardcore fan sort of songs like Fee in the Curtain just to kick it off. Oh, yeah. You know, you don't hear those every day. Saw it again. Isn't that common? And so once I think, hold on, I'm looking for the rest of the set that I had written out. I think I lost lost track of it. Oh, here it is. My Sweet One is an old song. That's also, I think, 1990. I think it was on Lawn Boy, I think, and Bouncing Around the Room. All right, I stand corrected. No, no, I'm, not trying, I'm, not trying to, I'm not trying to correct you because I hear I hear what you're saying, but I think I think it's not cynical though what you said because and I also don't think it's a bad thing. I like that he does that, and maybe that's just I'm overthinking it, but it always feels like that, right? A fish fan overthinking something. <laughs> but, a but fish fan on a podcast overthinking yeah. something. <laughs> and, but I think that it's also worth noting that Fish, of course, is a rock band. They're a premier rock band. They play uh, top line venues and they had a new album out. Yeah. You know, they 555 and Fuego. It would be weird if they didn't play newer songs. But back to the point, You Enjoy Myself is a really nice bow on any set. I think that's what it is. I think they are a rock band, but they're also fish. And I think that's what it is. It's not paying to a specific fan, it's paying to the authenticity of the band and the choices they make. And that they have to make some of those. I mean, and it's not a bad thing right like you have to introduce the new music you have to keep it fresh otherwise it dies but i think there is something to going back to what established them and the original works and do you remember what the vibe was among your group at set break at all no i at that point i think i was really uh focused on my fiance at the time and you know and the music i 
I probably should have been a better host, but I think at that point <laughs> we had, I was pretty, I think intoxicated because we had pre-partied right with the right, family party. Right. And, and it was such a fun first set that I think it was everybody's, they're all grown ups. Like everybody fends for themselves. Oh, uh, <laughs> is she overhearing you? <laughs> yeah. She's chiming in. She could chime in if she wants. There's plenty of room here. <laughs> Oh, she's reminding me that one of her friends was attractive. So all of my friends that were not into fish started fighting over her, her friend. But anyway, to my point, I didn't notice any <laughs> that was going on because I was a fish fan and into the band. Set two opens with Wilson, which is almost never in the second set, let alone to open it. So that must have been really fun. Yeah, I think that's uh here we go type moment, right? Like you get that baba and instantly it sets the setup for success. Something had to have happened in hindsight at set break because I mean, it'll become more obvious as we go through the second set. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But the I mean, they always like what they're doing, but some shows really stand out as just loose fun where the band just loves what they're doing. Like they don't give a shit who's watching. They just love jamming and being together and putting on a show. And that second set from top to bottom, from the first notes of Wilson all the way to the end was them having a blast and loving what they were doing. It seems that way because the first set I thought was satisfying, if not spectacular, but the second set really was spectacular. And that, that designation, or at least that thought from me really started with the next song, obviously, which was the beginning of this whole tweezer snake that went all the way through the set. And I broke it down this way that the first section was Tweezer to back on the train, back into tweezer, back into back on the train and then tweezer again. It was like this crazy club sandwich of a set list. Yeah. And it was seamless. And and that's not, in my opinion, easy songs to segue. Right. Like there's some songs that you can very easily segue back and forth, like uh, fire on the mountain with meat stick. If you were to do that, it's the same structure, the same yeah. rhythm, everything. You just slightly changing words. But this is an entirely different groove and feel. And and I think Fish led it and he had to. No one else could have led those transitions. I think that's what makes it unique, right? Because as like Tweezer is more raging back and forth, head bopping, right? And then back on the train is a very uppity, poppy, you know, like that, that. Yeah, almost like a bluegrass drum beat. Right, exactly. And, and you going back and listening to those transitions, they're it's brilliant, but it's also very obvious, right? There's that. And that's what was fun about it is you have the moment you click and now he's in the back on the train section and a click it's back in the tweezer click. It's back on the train. And you could hear when you listen to the audience recording of it, the eruptions every time, right? It wasn't that figuring out, Oh, what are they going into now that they sometimes do with segues where that in itself is cool that it organically grows. This was sharp transitions back and forth. And it was just a party. Everybody was in on it and having a great time. I agree a hundred percent with everything you just said in the beginning of it. You could hear almost it's almost like flirting, like between Fishman and Trey, like you could hear Fishman double up on the beat for like four bars and then go back to the regular tweezer drum beat. And yeah. then next time he does it again. And then the band joins in for like 
half a second, like they're, they're making a connection, like you're on a date or something and you both laugh and smile, but then you go back to pleasant conversation by the uncle Ebenezer section of tweezer. It's like immediately after that, they're totally committed. feel like they were in sync for the rest of the show like that that initial discourse locked them in and made them listen even more than they typically do i guess i don't know they were locked in from that point on absolutely and this whole first chunk between tweezer and back on the train it really explores it goes to a lot of places there's this great bliss major key jamming Uh, The last tweezer is like a preview of what would come in 2015, where there was a lot of chord based rhythm up um, major key jamming. Also, I wrote in my notes, this is the goods. And the spontaneity of it may only only makes it better. Yeah, and it was kind of unexpected. I mean, well, we, we haven't gotten quite there yet. Uh, I'm going to jump ahead a little bit. Yeah, go for it. When it comes back, that is when it really, I think, uh, was like, holy shit. Because you got this motif of tweezer back on train, tweezer back on the train. I forget how many times, right? And then they, what did they go into after that? It was back on the train uh, and tweezer. They almost had this kind of Manteca jam. It didn't quite go into Manteca, but there was this rhythm almost seven or eight minutes in. It's it's very dense. And then it kind of dissipates. It kind of chills out. And then they start waiting all night out of this, out of the ether kind of. Right. Which is a a page turn. It feels like, okay, that was a cool way to open the set. Now we're doing this uh, new song. That's kind of like a very produced popular. I don't know. Like I like, I love waiting all night, but it's a different feel. It is. It's kind of like an adult contemporary NPR song. 
to me. Yeah, no, I think that's a funny way to a funny and accurate way to describe it. Um, and then it was free. And then that's when the oh shit I was referring to was back into tweezer and to have that that palate cleanser of waiting all night and thinking you're going in a different direction and then just to pull back to tie the whole thing in was really really cool a really cool moment it's my favorite part of seeing fish in that you might if they stopped if they just went from free and moved forward and the rest of the set was great you would probably walk out of Meriwether saying Oh man, that opening of the second set was great. Like tweezer back on the train. That was so much fun. And you keep going. But the fact that they started free and during those, uh, those bass fills, you know, the dun, 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 that part, that's yeah. when Trey decided to introduce tweezer back in that makes it a living set. Yeah. You don't know where it's going to go and everyone's on the edge of their seat, but also blown away and delighted where like you mentioned the crowd uh, roaring every time. Yeah, and it, I, I hadn't thought about it at the time, but I wonder what it was like from the perspective of people that had never been to a fish show. <laughs> right? Like, like, they were like, the first set was like, okay, everybody's dancing and having a party, and now the cult side of fish, right? Like, everybody's just losing their fucking mind, you know, on the same thing, and, like, that must have been wild for those people to see that. So free, right when Mike's uh, Mike's bass fills and they usually go into a bit of a jam at that part, they go back into tweezer and then into simple. So like we've kind of we've left the reservation now. Yeah. Yeah. There's and there's no rules. There's no yeah. <laughs> right. It's it's like you said, it's open at this point. And there is some small jamming uh, before the transition back into tweezer after simple. And then like a one, it was like a one minute stopover. And then they pick up free again to close it out. I, I think it's incredible that they pick up free, like right where they left off. Cause if you quizzed me, even when I was just driving my car or listening on my couch, okay, where in free did we end? I would have no idea. I would not be able to tell you. Yeah. Cause I'm, I'm just flowing with the music, but the band knows instantly where to pick it back up to finish the song. Yeah. And I wonder if that was premeditated. Like, do you think this whole transition was this planned? Cause I know in the beginning it felt like a, a catch and, you know, like putting the bait out and, and flirting, but then it, were they just really on a different level with these transitions and not just for this show, but in general, or is some of it premeditated? It feels premeditated just for how tight and in insane it is. But at the same time, it feels like, I don't know, maybe they're just that good and on the same wavelength. <laughs> I'd like to believe that they're just that good and on the same, same wavelength. Well, and I think it's uh, a trust level too, where when, as soon as one of them takes a step over the edge, the rest of them go with them. There's no question. Yeah. There's no doubting. And I don't think you get that really in life anymore or with other bands, but even just on like a bigger picture, right? Where everybody's just on the same page for one goal and they move together. So it seems impressive because you're like, wow, they're literally thinking simultaneously, but they're not. One person is making a choice and the other three have unwavering trust and support that just go with it. So it gives it that illusion of step-by-step -step together. And after that, they kind of um, move away from the whole tweezer game and they go into catapult. And I, you asking about, do you think it was premeditated? I wanted to throw that question kind of back at you. Do you think catapult is always spontaneous? 
Because I don't know. I've seen it a couple of times and every time I've heard it on recording, even going back to, you know, however many years, it seems like whenever there's blank space or feedback or something weird, that catapult always snakes its way in there. It's like an ongoing inside joke, maybe just like, hey, if this happens or whatever, like this is our response. That might be it. There might be a trigger for it that we don't know. (laughs) Right. You know, I don't know off the top of my head, but I think we should look into that. Yeah. Hire a committee. (laughs) (laughs) So then the the set kind of returns to quote unquote normal with slave to the traffic light, which I think was a typical slave. And that means beautiful build and execution. Yeah. Very nice. I, I love slave. It's, and it's, I love it because it's fairly simple and absolutely gorgeous. And that combined gives you the feels without the flubs, right? Like mm-hmm. some 1.0 songs are beautiful, but it's hard to listen to when it's a lot of mistakes, but slave is usually executed perfectly because it's not overly complicated, but it's right. absolutely gorgeous. They move forward with down with disease, which I thought was a very smart call after slave. They've really become masters at, if not controlling, then certainly directing the energy level and vibe and layout of a set in terms of energy level and flow. And Downward Disease really kept up the energy and really made the show feel epic as opposed to just kind of fun. It brought some kind of gravitas to it after Slave. Yeah, I agree. And I think Disease, in my opinion, I mean, it's almost like a counterpart to Tweezer in the the magnitude and the jammy vehicleness of it. And I can think of a lot of great shows that have really good tweezers and I can think of a lot of great shows that have really good diseases, but I I feel like that maybe, I don't know statistically that doesn't happen a lot where they're in the same set like that. Cause they're both like powerhouses. Yeah. They're war horses. Yeah, exactly. And then to have a slave in between is like, you're right. That has just setless value alone. It's a very gravitas, uh, impressive show. Mm-hmm. And to follow that up with NICU, which I thought was a really interesting transition. Uh, it didn't sound like the song for a little short while. And then after NICU, there was like a jam, which I never, ever heard before. I don't know if there's ever been a quote unquote jammed NICU before or since. It's uh, I didn't realize that, but it also with uh, my sweet one in the first set, it was a had a double Leo. Oh, that's right, that's right. And yeah, the feature, I mean, Fish had taken over the beginning of the second set, so Leo had to get back in there and <laughs> yeah. shine again. Yeah, and he does also at the end of the set, but before that, before we get to Leo closing the set, Fishman had to step forward with 
the weirdest part. This is, you can make an argument that either the wheels fell off or it was just everything's in the mix right now that he came forward for Jennifer dances, sort of. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think this, I like to think of it as like the sense of humor of the band and having a really fun, crazy night and everything's on the table rather than it completely falling apart. I And I think that what separated like the fans from like casual observers was like that vibe of this is fish at their greatest doing silly shit. <laughs> I think it was in the fish book. What was it like 1998? It came out. You know what I'm talking about? The, the, the black and white one, not the black and white one. It has, I'll look it up exactly the details, but it's, it's kind of edited conversations with each band member. And Paige says something like our ultimate goal is to get the band to get to play as if we're all at, at soundcheck because like they feel they're most relaxed at soundcheck. And he said their ultimate goal is to play as if 18,000 people are also at soundcheck that we're completely unselfconscious that we're, we have no ego at all anywhere. And I think Jennifer dances this very silly part of the show is that, you know, they could be playing for like in the garage with their friends you yeah. know, when Fishman comes up to a mic and says, I don't, I practice nothing. I don't know any words to any songs in front of like 16,000 people. <laughs> yeah, no, I think, I think you're spot on. And that I think is confirmed by the next song um, with I've been around, yeah. not so much the the funness of the song, but if you remember, or I don't know if you saw footage of it, they chasing, they, we're chasing each other around the stage. I didn't see it. No. Yeah. So like, there's a famous picture from it with the band in line, right? Like running like with their hands out. Uh, so to close out the set, that whole like sound check we're at a, or we're just at a practice, like having fun, even to close out the set was very of that energy, right? Like that fun. We're not in front of this many people. We're just running around. Right. In case anyone was taking it seriously. You know, right. It's a like reminder. a reminder. Yeah, this is this is all fun and games. And I thought this was an awesome set. I'm so glad that you picked this show, even though we're not totally done with it yet. Uh, I, I've said a million times on this podcast that I love setless games and turn on a dime segues. Everyone was obviously having a ton of fun, the musicians, and you could hear it in the audience. It took a good first set and the second one made it a full outstanding show. To close the encore, uh, they played Boogie on Reggae Woman was a dance party. Uh, your crowd must have really been loving it. I know you said you were kind of in your zone, but I imagine no matter who it was, like bridesmaids and groomsmen, friends, whatever. Everybody at this point. Who doesn't like this, right? Yeah, well, it's contagious. Even if yep. it doesn't last, you, you can't help but smile and dance for Boogie on and for of that course. kind of energy. And to close it all out, there's really nowhere else to go. They had to play Tweezer Reprise. Yeah, it probably would have been the funniest uh <laughs> yeah. like slap if they didn't, but yep. but they did. And and then I'm I'm glad they did. It must have felt great though, closing the show and the lights coming up. It must have felt like you were all I could only imagine the smiles. Yeah, and the that the glow, the after show glow. <laughs> um it did have that two set the second set feeling almost like it had two sets. Yeah in itself and then i love the way they do that they build on each other because you're like oh my god this set's so good and it's almost over and then 
you look back and you're like, wow, we were only halfway through it. Like it just keeps <laughs> going and keeps delivering. So Tim, to wrap it all up, give us a reminder for weekend work and the brackets and work plus, where can we find all of this information? So on Twitter, it's at weekend Wook or at Wook plus uh, on YouTube, youtube.com slash Wook plus and Wook plus.com. And any final thoughts about this show? Anything we didn't get to that you wanted to throw in there? Talking about this and diving into those memories is really making me miss seeing live music. So I'm looking forward to having the band back and getting back to a show. Same, same. Feel the same way. We'll all be there when they are. When they're ready, we're ready. Yeah, I'll be there and I'll buy you a beer and we'll... Uh... <laughs> back at you. I'll get You get the first set, I'll get the second set. Perfect. <laughs> it's a 10. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. And there you have it, my conversation with Tim Weekend Wook of Wook Plus about July 27th, 2014 at Merriweather Post. As Tim mentioned, he doesn't know about all the jams and all the songs that he puts in the bracket. And as I mentioned, 2014 wasn't the most attentive year for me to know all about fish. So our conversation had a few facts and information and figures that require a fact check. Tim said that he remembers seeing Bruce Springsteen join Fish on stage at Bonnaroo 2009, but he didn't remember which night of the festival it was. Fish headlined two nights of Bonnaroo that year, the Friday and Sunday night shows. Bruce came out during the Sunday night show, which was on June 14th, 2009. Together with Springsteen, Fish played Mustang Sally, Bobby Jean, and Glory Days. In the same part of that conversation, Tim and I talked about the 2009 summer tour and how the band played a lot of shows this year. On that tour, they played 27 shows, which was just about half of that entire year. It included a three-night run at Hampton, a fall tour, and a New Year's run all in 2009. During our conversation about cheesier Fish songs and Fuego, Tim brought up the Mike Gordon song, Let's Go, and that Fish had played it, quote, a couple of times. Fish has played Let's Go exactly a couple of times, just twice. The first time was on July 1st, 2016 at SPAC, and then once more later that year on October 21st, 2016 in Alpharetta. It has not been played by Fish since. Tim brought up some interesting theories that sometimes trade tries to balance newer songs with old school classics in a set list. I guess that my sweet one, which appeared in today's first set, debuted in 1990. I was off by just a little bit. My Sweet One was first played on September 9th, 1989 in the Dining Commons, which to me sounds like a cafeteria in Bennington College in Bennington, Vermont. A soundboard recording of that show is available on fish.in. And that's it for today's episode of Attendance Bias. I'd like to thank Tim of Weekend Wook and Wook Plus for joining me today, Fish.net for providing all the information we need, and Fish.in for such an incredible sounding recording of this show. If you enjoy Attendance Bias, please support the show by leaving a rating and a review of the show on your favorite podcast app, or you could just tell one person about the podcast. Call them, text them, tell them, or whatever. Just spread the word. Thank you again for listening, and I'll see you next week on Attendance Bias. Attendance Bias.